We dedicate our time together this morning to all those who are suffering. We remember that our suffering and our well-being are shared. We acknowledge the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples on whose traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands, clouds and water is an uninvited guest. For those of us who are not indigenous to these lands, may we commit to curiosity and engagement with the lives, justice movements, and sovereignty of the native nations of this territory and beyond. We offer deep gratitude to our Indian, Chinese, and Japanese spiritual ancestors and contemporaries for all they have given us and for the chance to be here today. May we practice cultural humility. We recognize the Black community and the destruction of the historic Rondo neighborhood in which we practice, and we stand side by side in community care. We are all connected. May we work together for the liberation of all beings. Good morning. Good morning. I don't need this now, so I'm gonna move it. <laughs> I'm okay. Ugh, I feel like I'm protected. <laughs> so I, I was going to give a talk last week, and last week was the 8th. This weekend, but me and Kyoku switched. Um, so even though tomorrow's uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I don't have a talk on that theme. I apologize. Um, but may we all... Um, continue the work of anti-racism. Um, and I feel like the way, you know, I lived all my life in Zen centers and there was a way that uh, Martin Luther King Day was celebrated in Zen centers uh, that was very um, shallow and self-congratulatory. <laughs> you know, where you do the regular evening service and play the I have a dream speech and everybody gets misty and then, you know, they go on um, alienating the same people they've been alienating for 50 years, you know. Um, so uh, uh, let us vow to um, do better work than, um, than is easiest. Once you're a teacher, your 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 water gets a hat. <laughs> it's one of the perks. <laughs> so mice don't fall in. That's one of the in one of the one of the texts, one of the old texts, the instructions to the cook. It says, "When you watch the pot, do not let old mice fall in by mistake." It's from. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I wanted to talk about um, how to be, um, how to have a nice time. I think uh, there's a lot of ways to have a nice time. I've tried a lot of them. Um, I um I was born in uh, Monterey, California. Uh, there's a really beautiful hospital that has a koi pond underneath, like a big skylight. It's called Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula, or Chump, uh, <laughs> and it's on. Uh, there's a highway that connects Pacific Grove and, and Pebble Beach to Carmel. It's like on this ridge that goes across uh, what they call Skyline Forest. 
and uh, it's right near where my grandmother lives. And it was kind of like a point of pride. Like, uh, my grandmother was like, really, like, we live right near the hospital in case anything happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you wouldn't know it. You would drive by it. It looks like a forested area. And then there's this massive hospital there. And uh, my family uh, was in the Monterey area for a couple of generations before I was born. They came over from Sicily and uh, in like 1920 and around there. And they came to uh, an area north of San Francisco called uh, Pittsburgh or Bay. If you've ever taken BART, Pittsburgh Bay Point train in 15 minutes. Um, they're from that area. Um, and uh, then when the sardine business Kind of sardine canning took off in Monterey. They moved down to Cannery Row and they canned sardines and fish sardines and stuff. Um, so I had a little bit of uh, history there. But then shortly after I was born, um, my, uh, my dad moved my, my family unit. So not my extended family, but just me and my mom, my sister, and him all went to this town in the south of uh, Monterey. The southernmost town in Monterey County is called King City. Um, it's where a lot of people get speeding tickets when they're going from LA to San Francisco. And it's like, popu- at the time, I think it was like population 8,000, and it was all agri- agricultural business. Um, These pretty much were like east of Eden, and like, uh, what was that other one with? Uh, uh, Lieutenant Dan and, and um, no, the, uh, not the real Lieutenant, like guy that played Lieutenant Dan and John Malkovich uh, of Mice and Men. I think I grew up in of Mice and Men, Red Pony, East of Eden. Um, and it was, and there was something in the, that movement from uh, Monterey, which is where my like kind of family history was. And all my cousins were down to um, uh, King City that was kind of like isolated, you know. So, and my sister was like seven years older than me. So I was kind of alone a lot. Um, so my dad ran a guard. He was a manager. He got promoted after the Navy. Um, he, uh, he started uh he got a garbage route in Pebble Beach, which is like a, a bougie garbage route. Um, and then he got promoted to manager. And so he took over this garbage company in uh, King City, which was a landfill slash garbage service. So I used to play at the landfill. And I used to play in the big, um, they call them roll-off. To, uh, whenever I'm with men, I always name the garbage trucks that are going by. That's a front-end loader. That's a roll-off drop box. Um, and I used to play in the roll-off drop boxes, which are the ones that kind of look like, you know those garbage trucks kind of look like semi-trucks, and they have the two little tracks, and then you kind of pull the little thing up like that? I used to play in those things, um, new and old. And uh, and I was, yeah, just kind of alone on these, like, landfills are kind of like, you know, in, in nature. <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, I used to feel very kind of like if when you're like seven years old, like there's no better place to be than a landfill. It's like great, you know. There's all kinds of stuff to find. Um, there's all kinds of weird big things to crawl into. Um, and then there were I remember there were like mud puddles all over. 
and I would stand in the, you know, in the mud puddles kind of get like that kind of like crackle, you know, on the bottom of them. And it just feels like there's just like, there's like whole worlds in these mud puddles, like a whole like universe in a mud puddle. And I had like a pretty darn nice time. And then sometimes, you know, someone would throw away a go-kart that didn't work. So we'd hook up the go-kart to the back of a three-wheeler and get pulled around, you know, all the dumped children <laughs> get pulled around, <laughs> towed around in this broken go-kart and little things like that, you know. Um, and then uh, as I got older, um, I started to um, classify things and experiences, you know, and I started to know what things are and I started to know what their value were, you know, and like hanging out in a dumpster wasn't valuable anymore. I learned that it wasn't valuable anymore. So, uh, and I learned that where I lived, even though, you know, you got to go to cattle brandings on the weekend and play hide and go seek and like giant things of like hay where people store all their hay, you go play hide and seek in there. Um, uh, and, uh, but I learned that, that, you know, that's hick stuff. Um, and it's not cool. And what's cool is like, you know, like point break just came out and like being a surfer was cool or something like that or being a skateboard gang or something. Um, and, uh, so I moved, uh, right after high school, I moved to, um, Santa Cruz, which was like surfer punk rock heaven you know it was the place i wanted to be but then santa cruz started to get boring so then i moved to san francisco by the time i was 20 i was living in san francisco and um oh also one of the ways that i had fun when i was little not super little but like teens was to uh put on my favorite record but the way that I enjoyed the record was to pretend like I was in the band and that I was playing it and that I was playing a show for everybody that thought I wasn't cool. <laughs> you know, so in my head, I would have this whole fantasy world where I was playing these shows for all these people that thought I wasn't cool so that they'd know that I actually am, you know. Um, <laughs> and I still to this day, I'm 41. And still when I listen to music, I'm like, oh, they're going to think I'm so cool when I play this. You know, and I'm never going to play it. Yeah. But I still think that. And them, in my mind, are like, you know, a bunch of 14-year-olds. You know, I'm going to really show that. <laughs> Isn't that sad? I'm 41, and I still want to impress middle schoolers, you know, that thought I wasn't cool. Um, and laughed at me when I got picked up from school in a, dump, in a, in a garbage truck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> getting picked up from school in a garbage truck in the third grade is really cool. But in high school, it's not as cool. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so I had all of these little ways to like augment this kind of like sinking feeling of life being increasingly kind of not that, not that fun or a little bit disappointing, you know? Um, and so I was in bands and I thought, well, when my band plays the show, then I'm going to feel like there's wind in my sails. You know, or if someone loves me, then I'm going to feel like there's wind in my sails. You know, um, I definitely spent like, you know, all the money that I made on like takeout and like going out to eat and going to 
all the Thai restaurants in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, you know, that were open till like 3 a.m. and stuff. And just not even being hungry, but just going out to eat because I needed to have some kind of experience. So I was looking for things that made a kind of like, you know, if I left life alone, it would feel kind of bland. So I had to do something about it. You know, life, life in neutral wasn't good enough. I needed something fun to happen. And then one day, uh, uh, it, it, it happened kind of late in life. A lot of people have this experience when they're like teenagers or in high school, but when I, it wasn't until I was like 20 that I tried, uh, I remember it, it was a tall silver can of steel reserve high gravity lager because the neighborhood I lived in in San Francisco, you'd have to get on the streetcar to go to a grocery store, but there was a liquor store in every corner. Um, and, and the beer had big orange stickers that had a price and then it would say out the door. Like there's no, like, you know, exact. So you don't have to like be surprised like for taxes and stuff like that. It's like $1.75 out the door. You know? um, so that was a way to make a very boring existence way more fun. You know? So I started with baby steps into that world. Um, and then, um, I got really interested in um, kind of the bohemian history of San Francisco and like I would go to City Lights bookstores and I was really interested in like the kind of beatnik thing. And like then when you get into that, then you find out about Buddhism. Yeah. Um, uh, so I discovered Buddhism by way of like kind of unethical, awful writers like Jack Kerouac and um, William Burroughs, uh, um, and, um, who like were really wrong about a lot of Buddhist stuff. Um, um, but I got interested in that. And then I, um, I read this art, this interview, um, it was like this book called like the beatnik reader or something like that. It was like a comp compilation. There's an interview with this, uh, writer, Philip Whalen. Um, who, if you ever read Dharma Bums, his character is Warren Coughlin, is Philip Whalen. And, um, and uh, he said, uh, and he was living at this place called the Zen Center. And he said, well, we're doing this thing where if, you, if you're living in America and you don't want to live, you don't want to work for Standard Oil for 25 years and get a gold watch at your retirement or whatever, then we have another way of existing. Um, and I was just like, shit, yeah, I'll do that. You know, so I went to San Francisco Zen Center, and as soon as I walked in, I was just like, I'll do this, you know. Um, the San Francisco Zen Center is this really kind of pretty old building um, designed by Julia Morgan, who was an architect that designed uh, the Hearst Castle, um, which is in Central California, where the media magnate that Citizen Kane was based on, the, uh, that was his place, the real-life Xanadu. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was just gorgeous, and it smelled good, you know? And people had outfits, um, and they did cool old stuff, you know? Um, and being uh, white in the U.S. and being kind of separated from that kind of Italian enclave, like, I was hungry for, like, what do my people do? What do we do? And then it was this, this kind of replaced that yearning. It's like, here's a thing that people do. Not your people, you know, but you let's graft you into it so that you have some kind of culture, you know. 
And so um, I started um, when I got into it, I'm like, well, what's this place? I kept hearing about this place, Tassajara, which is actually really close to where I grew up, you know, close to Monterey and King City and all that. And they said, well, down there, they really do it the way they did it in like the 13th century. I'm like, you had me at 13th century. Um, so you, they give you a nice uh, robe with giant sleeves. Well, no, you find one. And then, um, and then you go live this awful gnarly schedule <laughs> of getting up at like 3.30 in the morning and sitting 8 to 10 hours a day and uh, eating every meal in a super ritualized kind of fashion and having like the longest morning service you've ever been to and um, and then a noon service and then an evening service and then vespers before you go to bed and uh, having to bathe with other people because they have bathhouses. Um, and, uh, and no electricity um, back then, no internet back then. Um, and I was in heaven, really. I thought it was great. But the way it worked was that you would um, do a 90-day retreat, and then you have like seven days off. And then you go back and you do a 90-day retreat, and then you have seven days off. And then you go back and you work the summer, which is like this like resort season, which is how they pay for the whole thing. Yeah. So it's kind of like six months as a monk, six months in the hospital the monk-themed hospitality industry, <laughs> you know, and every three months you get a vacation. And um, whenever I, so I'd meditate for 10 hours a day or six hours a day for like three months, and then I'd get this vacation, and I would go to San Francisco uh, and just like buy cool stuff for to support my monk life, go to Japantown, like, do you have lacquer bowls, you know, and um, uh and I would like kind of uh, party, you know, which is actually pretty normal. When I went to Japan, I found out like that's that's a lot of monasteries. That's kind of pretty common to do an intensive meditation retreat and then just get shit faced, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of how I lived. And then when it got to the point where I was kind of done with that, it felt like there was nowhere more to go you know, in that world. And uh, we had the idea of going and starting a center. My partner and I at the time had an idea of going and starting a center in New Orleans. So in 2011, we went and started a center in New Orleans. But when we left San Francisco Zen Center, my mind went into this thing like, it's vacation. You know, I felt like, so that vacation was the next 10 years instead of those seven days. And I was in the most vacationy place you could be. <laughs> You know, um, if you want to get stuff done and you have a hard time getting stuff done, New Orleans is a, a tall order, you know. Um, so we established the center and stuff and it went really well. And all the while I was um, had this bandaid of the, of the drinking kind of increase and in the, in the food and the, you know, and um, You know, there's this majesty to being a person that I think in, in, in our early, some of us, when we're younger, it's a little bit more apparent. And then as we learn what things really are, we think we're learning what things really are, that starts to get diminished. 
you know, and then it's like, where, what do you do with that lack of majesty? And similarly, when I was in the monastery, there's a way that all of that zazen keeps the mind really fresh for sensory experiences. So then you just like go outside and you're just like, what? Uh, there's a, there's a cloud. Or something, you know. <laughs> like, isn't this the? There's a scene in this um, Woody Allen. Sorry, Woody Allen movie, but I used to love Woody Allen movies. Yeah, um, before I knew. And um, there's a scene where Diane Keaton comes up to him and she goes, "Boris, look at this leaf. Isn't it exquisite? This must be the best of all all possible worlds." Yeah, and I feel like that's the mind I had when I was young. And I feel like that's a mind I had when I was living in a monastery. But then when you took me out of that setting, all bets were off. It was all gone, you know? And I had that, that taste in my mouth for wonder, but I didn't have the mind inclined towards wonder in like kind of my basic existence. So I had to do something. Yeah. Um, and the more you do the easy way, the more shut off we are towards the wonder that's, that's already there in just a regular being alive thing. Um, it's funny. Um, there was the World Cup this year was in um, a predominantly Muslim country, so there was no alcohol served at the stadium. And, is, and all the people that travel to go watch soccer at the World Cup, I was listening to this NPR thing where there were like a bunch of people that are like, so we got to watch soccer and not drink, you know? Um, and some of them were cool about it, you know, impressively. And some of them were just like, yeah, I don't think I want to go. You know, and I'm like, isn't the whole reason of going that you like, like watching soccer? <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and, uh, so I've, I've been thinking about this. Um, now that I want to have uh, a nice life where I'm not looking towards the easiest way to, 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 to have a nice time. How much time? How long do I go? Till 11 something? Till 11.10. 11.10? Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Not 11.10. Okay. So that was a long preamble, but I was setting the stage here. So I have a student that I was, and uh, they live uh, in a situation similar to what I lived in at Tassajara, and they don't have a lot of opportunity to like talk on the phone or anything like that, and they're thousands of miles away. But, um, and they're younger, so they're going through everything I've gone through. But nowadays, we got WhatsApp, so like most of our dokusan, most of our like teacher-student interaction is over WhatsApp, and um, and it helps me kind of figure out succinct ways to communicate what I want to communicate about practice. And I said the main thing that we're doing in this is um, and whenever a Zen teacher says the main thing that we're doing, it's it's one of many main things that we're doing. Um, you could go through all the Suzuki Roshi books and find every time he said, this is the most important point, you know, all the 50 different things. But I think the main thing that we're doing in this is um, uh, 
not not going to the most immediate habitual gratification one will under us. And I think if you look at all of the Buddha Dharma, it's about being um, curious and um, and wanting to get down to the heart of the matter in terms of what what really causes life to feel like an okay thing. Um, when I used to go surf, there would be this feeling that I would have just when I was like in my little 1986 Suburban, changing out of my wetsuit into my dry clothes where I felt even just like that kind of putting my socks on, have, because I was just in the water, it felt very vivid to me, you know? Um, and so I'm curious about what, what things are in place in the mind to make life feel like vivid and like its own reward, you know? Um, and that same student that I was talking to wrote to me and said, uh, how important is breath practice? You know, I like it. I think it's good. But I was curious about if whether or not you like it. You know, or or how important it is. Not not whether I like it, but how important it is. And this is an interesting point. Because it's kind of like, I, I don't know how important it is. You know, it depends on who you ask. Everybody that you're going to come across, especially if they're like teaching this stuff, has a different temperament. A lot of them don't realize that it's a temperament. You know, so it's like some people are going to be like, no, I mean, it's clearly central to what we're doing, you know. And then if you're like me and you have kind of executive function attention span kind of issues, like all the breath awareness in the world isn't going to like give you any kind of single point of concentration, you know. So like that prescription that like a lot of Buddhists are talking about and the effectiveness of it doesn't work on me and I've given up on believing that it's a matter of my deficit you know? so I'm not gonna so to me it's not super important and that's okay you know and then you might come across somebody else I don't know I don't know what your situation is so this is an interesting thing like so actually we have our work cut out for us in terms of figuring out what fortifies us to have an experience of life where life feels like its own reward and benevolent and laying that kind of groundwork down. Um, and that longing that I have to do something about how I feel is part of the kind of precursor for the spiritual life. And it's not, and I have a lot of, I'm in good company of being a spiritual person that is like overeats or like, you know, I had a drinking problem and stuff. You know, like that's all over the place because there's that kind of like kernel of longing for transcendence, you know, that manifests in all of these different ways, you know, that, that is, that in, ignites the kind of way seeking heart, you know? So to take that kernel 
and to get really enthusiastic and curious about what really delivers that for you in a sustained life affirming way that like encourages like your own like wellness and is not reckless or destructive. There's a lot of ways to have a nice time that are not related to wellness and are not um, and they're not sustainable and are reckless and destructive. And 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 some of those are really really subtle, like um, fostering feelings of indignation. You know, fostering uh, feelings of like spite. Um, I love having imaginary conversations where I embarrass people that have wronged me. Um, and even that is a kind of shortcut to a kind of like hit of something that makes, that makes my life feel a little bit better than it would have if I wasn't doing it. I'm getting something out of it. So what are the things that we do that we kind of want to let go of and what are we actually getting out of it? You know, and, and what's, what's, what's the course correction we can make here? Being very tender and gentle for ourselves for having um, a hard time and having needs around that, you know. But what's 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 a more uh, beneficial way of engaging this stuff? Um, there's a really great. This has become my fidget, by the way. Um, this cup. I'm not drinking out of it. I'm just touching it. There's this great, um, actually, a lot of my introduction to Buddhism was through going to the library and getting these VHS tapes called The Long Search. And they were on BBC in the 1970s. And you can watch them all on YouTube now. And there's one in Japan called Land of the Disappearing Buddha. And then there's one in Sri Lanka called The Footprint of the Buddha. And he meets with these really famous kind of teachers. Uh, Ananda Maitreya was the Sri Lankan teacher that he meets with in Sri Lanka. And then when he's in Japan, he meets uh, Omori Sogen, who was the founder of Chozenji in Honolulu. And he meets Mumon Yamada, who was a famous Rinzai teacher. And he goes to Mumon Yamada at his monastery. And uh, he goes, what is Zazen? And Yamada Mumon goes, uh, he quotes the Bible, and he says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have the heart of a child. Zazen is having the heart of a child. So I feel like for me, my efforts right now in the course correction of the way I responded to not being a kid anymore, the way I responded to not being a monk anymore, you know, living in a monastery, following that kind of lifestyle, you know, is to, you know, look at the ways that I've replaced that kind of longing with my go-to things and just being, and just taking the time because my life depends on it, you know, and the joy of the, the wellness and joy of those around me depends on it. Um, Taking the time to be like, okay, what am I trying to accomplish? And um, what are some more, what are, what are the best ways to accomplish this? You know? And 
not really, you know, it, the stakes are too high to not receive guidance and the stakes are too high to not make it personal and not make it your own. So I can listen to expertise or listen to tradition, listen to, you know, antique knowledge. But if I'm like, well, what should I do? What's most important? Actually, that compass is on this side. But figuring that out. Um, and I think the heart of it is um, touching what's inside with tenderness so that we're touching what's outside with wonder. And um, I don't think you need a ton of concentration to do that, or samadhi, or, or, or kind of any kind of heroic yogic effort, you know? But <clears throat> it doesn't happen when we're on autopilot. So to fan that flame, of tenderness towards yourself and tenderness towards others and, and wonder because, um, actually, uh, you know, I was just home for Christmas and my grandfather, I think he's gone to the hospital about three times in the past two weeks. He's about 92. Um, and when I look at him, when I look at his eyes, he looks like he's kind of saying his goodbyes to everything. And he's saying goodbye to a world that um, I've spent a lot of time thinking was uh, fucking me over, you know, or just just a big disappointment, you know. And um, I don't know what not this life is. I don't know what I'm comparing it to. But imagination is endless, so you can always come up with some kind of better situation, you know, and think, you know, if I just figured this out, then I could just hop tracks out of the life that I do have into this other life that I invented. And the life that, the life that you invented is going to win out in your mind over and over again, you know. Um, but I don't think there's any way it could possibly be as rich as the life that we have. There's too much that we couldn't come up with. So I, I live here and I'm gonna stay here and I like it here. And I'm a teacher at this center, and I'm really excited to go through the exploration of all of the methods of fostering tenderness and wonder, you know, even if they're a little bit unorthodox. You know, I'm teaching this retreat uh, at the beginning of February where we're going to try to 
do a lot of um, try to make you actually feel good, you know, um, instead of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times I think I approach, especially because it's living in monasteries, you approach Sashin as this kind of like heroic endeavor, you know, and I think I don't want to cheat anyone out of the heroic endeavor. I think it does neat things for the mind, you know, neat things for self-esteem and um, neat things for the relationship between, um, you know, taking pleasant and unpleasant, going beyond taking those experiences at face value, you know. Um, but uh, I do want to, um, you know, I spent a month at an ashram to train in Hatha yoga. And I was just like, oh, man, I'm happy at the end of the day. And that wasn't always my experience of Zen training, you know. And I think it, it could be it could be nice to inject a little bit of that in there, some some joie de vivre, you know. So, um, and there's a lot of different technologies in the yogic traditions that we're part of, beyond sitting still, like mantra chanting and and, and devotional practices and uh, yogic uh, energy work and movement and stuff like that. That I think can really might drive the point home more than trying to concentrate and things like that. So, and I think we all have a different little cocktail that we need um, to foster our, our wonder and, and tenderness. So I'm excited to, you know, for us all figure that out together and continue to figure it out because it's, it's a, it is a moving target all the time about what, what's beneficial in any time. Um, we can chat for seven minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know that uh, that playing in the band thing? Yeah. That's still there at 68. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll show them. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Cut them. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering how you would say, or if you would say, that the time you spent in a monastery helped um, bring you to this place, or if it did, yeah. I mean, it must have, but I have nothing to compare it to, you know. Yeah. But here's what I here's what I think about monasteries. Though, okay, there is. Uh, uh, I had a friend that was the sound engineer for the Indigo Girls. And they were playing in, in New Orleans, and one of them said something like, I went to college here. And someone from the crowd said, college sucks. <laughs> um, and she goes, yeah, unless you can afford to go and want to. You know? Um, and uh, I think I kind of feel that way a little bit about monasteries, you know? Um, I think, I think, you know, you, I want, like, when I was 23, I, want, I had to go to Japan. You know, no one could have talked to me about it. Um, and I was back in a couple of weeks because, like, what I experienced at a, at a monastery in Japan was um, an identical practice to what I was doing in the U.S., but with, like, with saturated masculinity. And self-congratulatory like toxicity that was nice like all um uh i think sitting a lot 
can in some folks, and I think it did in me. Um, anchor in this kind of felt experience of the um, textures of stillness. You know, the real like blooming saturation, technicolor experience of stillness. Um, that I uh, think probably would have been hard for me to experience in other ways. Um, now, when you enter a very, very controlled environment and you have, um, and you get access to that experience, when you leave that controlled environment, that experience is not readily available to you just because you, you had experience with but it does exist as a point of reference. Um, so there is a thing that I ha have the experience of, of when, you know, there's this technical term in Buddhist psychology called papancha, which it's a polyrhythm term, it means mental proliferation. It means just like um, notions multiplying in your brain until they're like filling it, you know? And when I notice that I'm experiencing papancha, mental proliferation, I can go, and visit that kind of, um, the thing that's not that, you know, to use hypothetical. The thing that's not that, um, and if I didn't, and if I didn't do a bajillion sessions, I don't, I don't know how I would have found it. You know, um, and I think, uh, gosh, I can't think of a monastery that doesn't feel like um, I can't think of a Zen monastery in the U.S. that. Doesn't doesn't at, at even from a distance when I look at it, I feel like I see telltale signs of of um, disempowering uh, uh, um, uh, what's the word um, infantilizing. Um, uh, overworking, you know, like taking people, taking people, and turning them into tools to perpetuate this being, and the being is the monastery. Yeah. So they're like uh, not not necessarily cults, but like high demand groups, you know. And and there's a rhetoric of foregoing your interests for yourself and your wellness for yourself, and in service of like the kind of like greater good. And I think that has like a huge shadow side that I, that I experienced very directly, you know? And, um, and I think I spent a long time thinking it was just the place that I was at. And when I visited other people or talked to other people, they were like alumni of different monasteries. I'm like, no, I think it's just kind of like what happens when you try to do that, you know? So I think similar to like that college analogy that I had at the beginning, similar to college, it's kind of like, how invested are you going to get? You know, like, are you using the place for what it can offer you? Or do you want to change the culture there? Or, you know, 
um, is it possible to be changed or will you just be labeled a problem person yes you know be shown the door um, so yeah it's a real it's all it's all contaminated <laughs> everything <laughs> you know so we have to just pick figure out how dirty we want to get or what we can stomach you know does that make Thank sense um, I learned um, I learned the craft of the ritual aspect of what we do really well there, you know, but I've seen people learn it without living in monasteries or that as well. But I think it particularly because of my teacher too. Um, and that, and the, and the, and the craft of the ritual aspect of what, a, of, of what a priest does in Soto Zen is um, not an addendum, you know, as a lot of kind of, I think there was a movement in the 20th century to kind of pretend like all the ritual aspects of Zen were kind of like this weird accretion, but I think that was actually just uh, uh, white supremacy. <laughs> you know? It's just like, well, all of that, you know, Confucian stuff is extra. It's like, no, actually, it's 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 the heart of the matter. You know? Yeah. Okay. Thank you.